trying to follow her around and keep up with her. It's been amazing. But yeah, I love her and Andrew too. Uh, they fell in love kind of suddenly down at UC Santa Barbara. I don't know how much of their personal life, but I'm going to disclose some of it for you. <laughs> but uh, I remember they, uh, it always seemed to me like there were a lot of guys chasing my daughter. So I was always kind of on guard, you know. And then finally she, she kind of said, I'm tired of these guys who were inviting me out and that type of thing. I mean, most of them she held off anyway. But uh, so she called, called us up. We were living in, in Chicago at the time. Uh, I was teaching back there. And she said, uh, you know, it's the one most wonderful thing. I've met this Christian guy here at Santa Barbara who, and you know, there's just no romantic thing at all going on. And it's just so nice to have a relationship where there's no chemistry like that going on. And we can just pray together and talk about life and this type of thing. So we thought, oh, that's interesting. And so within two weeks, she said, We've, we want to get married uh, to each other. And we want to get married in uh, three weeks or something like that, or three months or something. And so we said, whoa, this is a little too fast. Let's hold this up. So anyway, so we came out there and had a meeting with, uh, with, with uh, this was a couple months later, uh, with Andrew's parents and us. And so all six of us went out for dinner together. And of course, we'd gotten to meet Andrew a little bit. And so uh, we, we, just, we had dinner, and his parents were really, you probably met them if they've been up, they've been up here sometimes. And, so uh, at the end of the dinner, uh, you know, they're saying they want to get married. And so we said, well, okay, let's have a vote. Okay, let's have a vote. <laughs> so first of all, I said, uh, everybody here who's in favor of Andrew and Jody get married, raise your hand. So we all do it. It was six to nothing. And then afterward, I said, now, everybody who's in favor of delaying it, though, until next uh, fall, raise your hand. So we had four to two um, <laughs> and won the vote. But anyway... Anyway, the rest is history. They, they got married uh, a little bit later, and I remember at the, uh, uh, when on the father of the bride does a toast, you know, at the wedding, and so I basically said, uh, you know, I actually believe in arranged marriages. I don't believe in this kind of thing where you go out and just find somebody. Uh, but if I was going to arrange for a husband for my daughter, it would be this man right here. So it's been, it's been just a, an honor to be uh, father to my daughter, but also father-in-law to Andrew, and, and then these beautiful four grandchildren. And then to watch this church grow over the last uh, decade, uh, and to meet you. And actually, we're sort of part of this church. It's just that we've been on the East Coast, so we're kind of in the process of moving back. We actually have moved back into our old house in Rockridge, and so we are re-anchoring in this community and hope to see you a lot more and be part of this. Uh, but I couldn't cut the cord completely with Gordon Conwell Seminary uh, because they actually created a position uh, which has a horribly long title, but it's because two uh, business people back in the Boston area, great Christian people, uh, one of them is Tom Phillips, who's a longtime CEO of Raytheon, which is a big defense contractor, he put in a million dollars, and then the widow of, of Coleman Mockler, who was the longtime CEO at Gillette, put in a million dollars to endow what is really the first position in any theological seminary uh, where it's focused on the theology of work, not just the theology of salvation and the afterlife, but what does God want to do uh, Monday through Friday, you might say, in our, in our work lives. This is a seminary that's made a commitment to that, 
and I've spent my life sort of working both sides of the street. I, I've taught Christian ethics most of my life for the last 40 years uh, at Fuller Seminary and other places, Regent College in Vancouver, uh, written books on this. University Press has some of my books on Christian ethics. Uh, but at the same time, I've always been really concerned about how to apply that stuff in our work, in our work lives. And so I've taught business ethics a lot. Most recently at St. Mary's College, I was, spent 10 years teaching MBA students at St. Mary's and consulting for small and medium-sized companies around the Bay Area here. And so when Gordon Conwell opened up this position, they were looking for somebody who had worked both sides of the street, not just a Christian ethicist with opinions about business, and not just a business ethics person with opinions about Christianity, but somebody who'd actually kind of lived in both of those worlds. And uh, I've managed to live in both of them and be mediocre in both of them, but I had the right combination. And so I couldn't refuse the invitation to go back there. Well, our, uh, I can't see my screen behind me. And our, there it is. Uh, in our technology at Gordon-Conwell, we have this thing called monitors where I can actually look at my screen so I don't have to turn around and see what's, so someday, Maybe we'll have those here at uh, Solano where I can actually see what's going on back there. But anyway, we're calling this salting the workplace. Uh, you know, how does God want us to be present in the workplace? And I want to just give you four simple ideas that come right out of the Bible about how to be present in the workplace. But first of all, let's uh, have a prayer together. Lord God, we are so grateful that you have... Uh, shone your love on us even sometimes when we were running away and running hard to get away from you and yet you wouldn't give up and you wanted us to be in your family and so this morning we rejoice in being your children we rejoice that we're not alone in this adventure but we have brothers and sisters that we have your word as our guide and your spirit to empower us even when we're weak and so we just ask you lord would you bless us speak to us through your word in christ's name amen well, the, the text that I uh, wanted to call your attention to this morning, I actually have uh, several texts that I want to look at, but the first one is, is the uh, Beatitudes, uh, really in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where we get the phrase right after the Beatitudes is this idea of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, I can't look at the whole Beatitudes with you. That would be another exciting thing to do. But this is early in Jesus' ministry. So if you want to look at Matthew 5, if you have a Bible, or at least make a note of this and look at it later. Uh, when Jesus saw the crowds, if you look at Matthew 4, yeah, hold up your hand if you need a Bible. Sorry, I'm kind of impatient, I guess. Uh, so this is Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5. In chapter 4, Jesus has just kind of come out in public, and he's traveling around, healing people, telling the good news of the kingdom of God. And the crowds are massing around him. And so that's the lead-in to Matthew 5. When Jesus saw those crowds massing around him, he went up on the mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So Jesus is pulling out of the crowds a little bit here, going up on the mountainside, calling his followers around him, and he's going to teach them what kind of people they need to be in order to continue that mission to the crowd. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, and so on. I'm not going to go through all these right now, except just to say these are the characteristics that he will then say make us the salt of the earth. So the first one of these is to be humble. If we want to salt the earth, we've got to be people who are poor in spirit, not people who are full of ourselves or full of opinions and all that kind of thing. We need to learn how to be humble and teachable and open. And that opens people up to be able to hear from us if we tend to be poor in spirit rather than arrogant, as a lot of people tend to think us. Anyway, so he goes through these Beatitudes. There's basically eight of them. And then in verse 13, we get to the uh, summary of the matter. You, people with these characteristics, people who are following me, Jesus says, you know, my disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, And then he goes on to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But these are two powerful metaphors for what it means to be a Christian, to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world. I just read not too long ago a book called Salt, a history by Mark Kurlansky. It's really a great book, and every preacher and probably every Christian ought to read this book, but it's a history of salt, uh, a history of salt and its uh, function in the world and in the economy. And it's, it's amazing how these kind of basic things like water and salt are so critical to human existence. Uh, And salt has been used primarily as a preservative. You know, that's the meaning of salt, is when there's no refrigeration, is to keep meat from rotting and to keep keep things... uh, So it's, you know, we use salt as seasoning, but its primary function has been as a preservative to keep things from rotting and decaying. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's really saying, you are the people who will keep things from getting worse. If we could have some people out there who are poor in spirit and people who uh, have tender hearts and mourn when bad things happen, people who are meek and gentle, people who have a passionate hunger for righteousness and yet who are merciful and peacemakers and pure in heart, if we could have some people like that, it would keep situations from deteriorating in our public schools or in our cities, uh, wherever, wherever we are, that keeps situations from getting worse. If you have people who have these characteristics in an ethnic conflict, it keeps things from getting worse. If we could just have some people around who salt the community with that kind of a character and attitude. But the problem is that sometimes our salt loses its saltiness. So we are the salt of the earth, but we're not real salty anymore because we've kind of lost those characteristics sometimes. So we want to always try to think of how we can, that's a valuable role to play in what God wants us to do. But the positive side is you are the light of the world. So if salt keeps things from getting worse, light is the agent that enables life and growth. You know, it enables us to see where we're going and to see the truth. Uh, And so light is this positive uh, metaphor for what makes possible life and growth and progress. And so we're the light of the world. And here the problem is if we hide it, if we hide that light, instead of figuring out how to let it out, 
you know, it's, it's no good. So we need to learn what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Well, the, uh, the, this, is, this is the basic imagery I wanted to give, share with you this morning, is we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, but what does that mean in our work lives? Not just in our neighborhoods, but what does that mean in our work lives, our workplaces, whether that's a school or a corporation or a laboratory or even working in our own homes, that becomes our workplace and our neighborhood, and it still has the same significance before God. So what does that mean? Well, one of the things uh, that we see in the Bible is that Jesus has a great deal to say about what this is. So I have a slide here where I said Jesus gave us an example. Look at that. Uh, Now, actually, he probably didn't really work 30 years as a carpenter. He was, because probably at age six months, he wasn't doing a lot of hammering and sawing and things like that, so maybe it's more like 20 years or something. But at any rate, he grew up for the first 30 years of his life uh, in the home of a man who was a carpenter, Joseph, a woodworker. And so that's a pretty amazing thing, to think that God would come into the world and not be a preacher, you know, or God would come into the world and not get busy, you know, by age 20 out there. But instead, he spent 30 years as a carpenter, as a laborer, as a builder. And that tells us something about God's valuing of that kind of thing, that he would actually do that kind of work for 30 years. But then he spent three years doing other kinds of work where he was healing the sick, uh, making bread and wine and fishing and counseling and teaching others, so he was doing a number of other things. If you actually count up, if you were to go through the four Gospels and just make a list of what did Jesus do, uh, the top thing on the list would be he was talking to people about the kingdom of God, telling them stories, parables, preaching. Uh, So he was above all a teacher-preacher kind of person. But the number two thing would be healing, that Jesus spent a lot of time uh, healing. Uh, You know, the Sermon on the Mount is a big teaching episode. It's the most famous teaching episode of Jesus, Matthew 5 through 7. But Matthew 8 and 9, right after that, is really two long chapters of about 10 healing episodes. And Jesus is doing all these different healing kinds of things where he's addressing people with different kinds of physical ailments and mental and spiritual oppression and things like that. So it's like you have the Sermon on the Mount and then you have the healing Uh, ministry of Jesus unfolded in a lot of different ways. And so obviously that matters to God a lot, is for us to be engaged in the fight against disease and and, and, uh, in all of its forms, disease and injury and that sort of thing. And Jesus also doesn't just give us his uh, example. And by the way, when Jesus called his 12 disciples together and gave them the commission, he said, here is what I want you to do in the world. I want you to go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, and I want you to go out and heal the sick wherever you can find people who are uh, hurting and sick. Do what you can to help them. And then later on, Jesus called 70 people together, and he appointed them to go out to the nations. The Jewish tradition at that time was that there were 70 nations on earth. And so when Jesus called 70 people together, It was symbolically saying this isn't just for the 12 tribes of Israel. This is for the 70 nations of the world. And he commissioned the 70 to do the same two things. Teach the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and go out and heal people who are sick. And in the book of Acts, that's exactly what they do, is they preach and heal. And in the history of Christian missions, that's what people do. 
Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd and David Livingston, all these missionaries, William Carey, when they went out as missionaries around the world, they went out to preach and teach, but they also either got medical training themselves or took doctors and nurses with them. All of them. All the great missionaries did that. And so it's, today it's really important that Christians be in the forefront of fighting against disease and famine and things like that in the world alongside of our proclaiming the gospel. That's part of our heritage is to do that kind of thing. So Jesus gave us his example, but he also gave us his teaching. And now here's a very interesting thing is Jesus had more to, when you actually look at what he taught, he had more to say about money, property, and wealth than he did about heaven and hell or about marriage and sexuality or about a lot of, a lot of topics that are really hot-button issues for Christians to debate. Jesus actually had more to say about money, property, and wealth uh, and how to use them properly and uh, how to use them to the glory of God than he did about all, a lot of these other topics. But how many of us who are in business have ever really carefully studied what Jesus had to say. Uh, not, not nearly enough. We don't study it nearly enough because this is the third way teaching of Jesus about our economics and our finance, and we need to become much more familiar with it. Well, anyway, that's by way of uh, kind of introduction. And so I want to now share with you the first point that I would say about how to, how to salt the marketplace. So the first, how, how, what do we actually do? So in a sense, the, bad, the Beatitudes are saying, this is what you need to be. This is the kind of character you need to take out there. Somebody who's humble, you know, poor in spirit, that kind of thing. But now, what do we actually do to help solve the workplace? Well, I want to suggest four things. And the first three will be slam dunk obvious to you. But still, we sometimes don't do these. And so the first thing that I, would, I often say to business people and workers of all types, is we need to pray more about our work. Uh, you know, we pray about a lot of things. A lot of times we pray, I would say, for grandma's knee, you know, that type of thing. We pray for our sort of intimate needs, physical needs a lot of times, and that's good. We ought to pray for those things. Uh, but sometimes we ought to pray a little bit more expansively. You know, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to tell you something as an old man here. I love this church, but one thing that bothers me actually, is that we don't gather to pray for the world and for our community enough. Uh, not to be too critical. I don't really mean to be critical because, I, as I say, I love this church. But I feel like we ought to be praying every time we gather. We ought to at least have a moment where we pray for Berkeley and Albany and for the world and our schools and for this messed up uh, political and social and military thing. Now, we can do that on our own, but I think we ought to see that as part of our function here, too, is to pray for the world around us and pray for the workplaces around us, too, and that type of thing. But anyway, in our own uh, personal prayers, you know how uh, Paul writes that we should be praying without ceasing, you know? Uh, we shouldn't have our eyes closed when we're praying if we're driving down the road, of course, but we should pray regularly and that ought to be an intensive part of our life that we're talking to God and saying, Lord, I, I want to thank you for how good you are, but I also would like to ask for some guidance here, you know, and all that sort of thing. So we need to pray, but a lot of times we don't pray enough for our work. Uh, and what I would say is a lot of times when we do pray for our work, they're crisis prayers. Like, Lord, I'm about to get fired and I need your help. Lord, I'm not getting paid enough. Would you please intervene with my boss? You know, that type of thing. These are crisis prayers. 
Lord, we're about to get sued. Would you please? These are crisis prayers. And these are all good. It's all good. But what we need to do is have what I would call proactive uh, prayers, where we basically pray and say, Lord, would you be the guide of my work uh, this week? And would you guide our business so we can glorify you? Now, here's my one idea for how I do this in my life. This is not the only way to do it. But what I have done for many years, and I learned this from a little devotional guide from the Moravian, uh, Moravian brethren, I guess they're called, Count Zinzendorf and all that, these people put out this devotional that I really love. Uh, and there's a pattern in there for how you, you sort of give one day to different topics. So you know, every day you can deal with the emergencies. They can get on the list. But you know, uh, to focus a, a different topic each day. So what I've done, I love the Lord's Prayer, which is in, also in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, here's how you should pray. Here's how you should pray. Our Father uh, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So pray like that. You don't need to just repeat that exactly, but pray like that. So this is what I've been doing for a long time, is when I, I have a routine where, uh, you know, I get knocked off my routine once in a while, but I always default back to my routine. My basic routine is get up in the morning, go make some coffee, Pete's coffee, of course, French roast, you know, this type of thing. Uh, take it to my chair in the living room, and, uh, and then I confess, sometimes I read the sports section first. Uh, <laughs> But I do get to my Bible, and I always read two chapters as my thing. As I'm, and I'm always trying to work my way through my Bible and write down when I read things so that I just keep it going, and I kind of have this compulsion to write something on every page next to each chapter, you know, eventually. But then after I've read my Bible, then what I do is I pray. And what I do is every day I pray the Lord's Prayer kind of thing, okay? So, and on Monday, which is symbolically the first day of the week, I pray something that goes like this. I say, Father, I'm so glad I'm your kid, I'm your child, and help me to honor you uh, today and this week, especially in my work. I want, I want to be your son, your child, in my work as a professor uh, this, this day and this week. I want, and also, Lord, I want you to be king of my work. And I want your will to be done in these things that I'm writing and I'm doing. I pray, Lord, that you will be glorified. Your name will be glorified in my work. Uh, but, Lord, I need help. <laughs> Would you help me today to have more time and to be more effective? You know, give us this day our daily bread. So I'm saying, Lord, would you help me out? Or sometimes I might say, Lord, I, we need some money. Would you help me raise some money for this project or something? But I'm praying proactively uh, from, and would you forgive me for the mess-ups that I do and help me to have a forgiving attitude toward people around me too. And Lord, would you protect me from temptation and fall in my work. Help me not to be arrogant, too proud. Help me not to be too quick to make judgments about this. But Lord, keep me from temptation and from the evil one in my work. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. I need your help, Lord. I want to glorify you. Would you help me? Amen. <laughs> you know, something like that. Then what I do on Tuesday, this is just to give you the pattern, is on Tuesday I pray that way about my family and my marriage. So I say, Lord, 
would you be the king of my marriage and my family and my being grandpa and this kind of thing? And would you help me do your will? I want you to be king of my family. <clears throat> but would you help us out in the following way? So you see, it's a kind of pattern. On Wednesday, I pray for my church, you guys. Uh, but I also pray for all the churches I've been part of since I was a kid, which is about six. And I thank God for that little church I grew up in that taught me to love the Bible, that type of thing. And on Thursday, I pray for my friends, my friend list, which is kind of long. But... And on Friday, I pray for the world, Obama and everybody else. I pray for the world. On Saturday, I pray for me. And on Sunday, I pray for God and his concerns. So I have this kind of pattern through the week that structures, that makes sure that I don't live a life of crisis prayers only before God. But I pray for my work. If God is alive, which we, he is, we need to ask God to get involved in our work, and it will change our attitude, and it will change what's going on in our workplace. That's the first thing we need to get better at, is, uh, is praying about our work. Do you agree with me? I mean, it's not obvious that uh, this is going to happen, so we need to make sure that it's not just the crises that drive us. The second thing is also slam dunk obvious, which is to evangelize. You know, we're put here, as Paul writes, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that's the second way we're going to salt the workplace, is as God gives us an opportunity, we're going to share our faith. It's not so much sharing our faith. We're going to share Jesus Christ with people in our workplace. Now, there are a lot of places that kind of repress, you know, it sounds like people are saying, oh, we don't want any religion in our workplace and things like that. There are a lot of places in the world where, you know, it's illegal to proselytize and things like that. Uh, my first answer to all of this, uh, I really think it comes out of my Christian faith, but some people think it comes out of my Berkeley days, and that is civil disobedience. I, I don't actually care whether it's legal or not, uh, because I think we're here to be the spokespersons for uh, Jesus Christ, and I just don't think that school policy really would affect very much what I do. I, I suppose maybe it would, I don't know. But I'm just saying we are ambassadors for Christ. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, and we need to kind of demonstrate that and speak it up. But now here's the, the problem is a lot of us are shy. I'm not terribly shy myself. But, you know, I have been intimidated at times uh, by, you know, representing Christ in some... It's hard for me to remember when that was, but I know I have been. But, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, uh, it's hard for many of us to say, how would I share my faith with somebody in the workplace? You know, how would I actually stand up for Jesus and tell people about Jesus Christ? And I want to tell you my basic method again. I'm just sharing with you what I've learned over my uh, long time of trying to do this kind of thing. And that is... I don't actually uh, think of evangelism uh, in terms of how can I get in a word here? How can I uh, you know, get my fish pin in their face or something like that? Uh, what I do is I ask people questions. I ask people for their opinions. Like I would ask people uh, you know, about Islam or something like that or ask them what they think about what's going on in Israel and is it really caused by religion? And I would ask people, what do, you, what do you think about? Is there any answer to that? And what's going on in, in Iraq by uh, 
or in that Islamic State by making Christianity illegal and burning those churches down. What do you think about that? And did you ever, did you ever uh, go to church uh, or ra- did you go to a synagogue or were you raised in a religious tradition? And what do you think about it? Were you ever taught to hate people who weren't with you? Uh, you know, so I ask people what they think because I care about what they think, first of all. I do want to know what do they think. This is what I do at my gym. is what I have done when I'm teaching MBAs or anything else. If I have opportunity, I'm friendly, I reach out to people, and I ask them what their opinion is. And it is almost absolutely guaranteed that what will happen is one day they turn around and they say to me, well, what do you think? Do you have a religious background, or were you ever part of anything like that? And bingo, then I tell them what I think. And I'll say, well, you know, the reality is that actually I am a very passionate Christian. I'm a a Jesus freak, actually. And I love the Bible, and you know, but here's what I think is the Bible really teaches about this. And but then they're listening, they're asking me what I think about these things. So now I'm not saying that's everybody's pattern, but I'm saying even the most intimidated, shy person can ask people questions and show interest in people, and then that often will lead to them asking you. Now, there are a lot of other ways to share the faith, but that's one way that's pretty, pretty uh, successful, I think. The third thing, the third way that we uh, salt the workplace is by our example. In other words, people just looking at us and watching how we behave and how we operate. And here's just one of many places in the Bible that gives us some encouragement along these lines. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, which is a word for the nations. Conduct yourselves honorably among the nations that they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God. So it's really important that in the workplace we set a good personal example, whatever that workplace may be, both in terms of our, the way we care about other people, our integrity and in the way we manage money, or the way we assess people's performances, or, uh, and, and sexually, not to be uh, you know, flirting around and getting involved with people and stuff like that. It's really important to, uh, to set a good example. Okay? Our conduct is really important around other people. That's part of the way we salt the workplace and light, light the world. Now, how do we figure out how to do this, and how do we stay, account, uh, how do we stay strong in this way? I think the most important thing I've had going in my life is that almost all of my adult life I've had some kind of small group of two or three other uh, brothers in the faith who I meet with and pray with every week. And so we share what's going on. Like right now I have three other professors at Gordon-Conwell who we meet every Thursday afternoon. Not while I'm out here, of course, but every Thursday afternoon. And actually even this summer we email each other on Thursdays a lot to say here's what's going on and we pray for each other, and we have, some of, sometimes we have tough, tough relationships to deal with, but we help each other by saying, okay, here's what I would do, you know, or let's think about that. Don't act too fast, or, you know, things like that. We pray for each other, and it helps us to be strong. And if you were in your office, and you start feeling yourself uh, feeling flirted with by somebody or, or, or feeling drawn to... Uh, get too close to somebody, it's really good if you have a small group and you could say, look, I want you to hold me accountable uh, and ask me about this relationship because I want to stay strong and I feel I'm weak around this person. And sometimes people will just kick you where you need to be kicked and they'll give you some strong advice about staying strong. But that accountability support group 
is really a good idea. So, and I think uh, it's best in this case for women to have two or three women, at least one other person, but maybe two or three that you meet with regularly. Uh, and men, I think, ought to meet with men in this kind of context, too. There's plenty of other opportunities where we ought to be together, uh, men and women studying and praying together. But in this case, I really feel like uh, that accountability and support group is the key, really, to staying strong and not deceiving ourselves. And the fourth thing I want to uh, say here in the end is uh, sharing what I call sharing insights. I guess what I should say is sharing workplace insights. Uh, now, Jesus in the Great Commission uh, you know, said that we should preach the gospel to everyone, but then he, you know, he says teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. That means that money stuff, that law stuff that he taught as well. That's part of our teaching. That's part of our witness. And then Paul could say, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so it's that kind of very inclusive thing. Now, let me just say in my own experience, this is kind of what got me going on all of this years and years ago when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley. Was, uh, this is 1964 when I got out of high school. So I'm having my 50-year high school reunion, San Leandro High School reunion uh, in October, actually. And uh, a lot of these people, actually, I went to elementary school with uh, in San Leandro. So it's always a great time to see these uh, people. They're all looking really old now, you know, but uh, <laughs> so am I. Uh, it's kind of funny, though, how people relate at this time. It's really, really fun. Uh, and, you know, one of the interesting things, too, is uh, partly thanks to Facebook, and I'm not a real technology, I'm kind of a technology critic, actually, but I do have a Facebook presence. And what's interesting about Facebook, one of the interesting things about Facebook and these social media things is everybody gets to see it. So, you know, as I said, I've lived a lot of my life, uh, you know, doing business ethics and things like that. And so there's a lot of people who don't know me as quite such a passionate Christian. They know me as a business ethics guy. But everybody, you know, when they look at my Facebook page, they can see my Jesus side is very prominent, you know, to a lot of people. And I like that, uh, that aspect to it, that it's a place where it's kind of, everybody's understood that you're going to show what you're all about there. So, uh, but anyway, so I'm an undergraduate at Berkeley. And so the first thing, I'd been, I'd been raised in a very passionate, committed Christian family where my, my uh, parents uh, always, we always read the Bible every, every night after after supper, we'd sit in the living room and we'd all read two verses out of a chapter and then we'd all kneel down and my father would lead us in a prayer, that type of thing. We're all totally public school people. We didn't, they didn't believe in Christian schools because they thought I might be exposed to bad doctrine there or something. So we all went to public schools and when I got out of San Andrew High School, it was just obvious that I should go to Berkeley because if I went to Wheaton or someplace like that, I might be exposed to bad doctrine. So. <laughs> It's kind of hilarious, actually. Uh, but anyway, so I went to Berkeley. And so here, the fall of 64, the free speech movement begins. And so what do I think about that? What, as a Christian, what am I supposed to think about that and about civil disobedience and about, uh, about the fact that Berkeley at the time, uh, I was a history major, and they basically taught the history of white people. And so there was a lot of protest uh, about the fact that there was not enough study of history of people who were not in the European uh, tradition. And so there was a big shutdown my, before my junior year at Berkeley uh, called the Third World Liberation Front, which uh, very modestly titled. Um, but 
the campus was shut down demanding some of these other courses. So I actually got to take the very first ever uh, course in African American history at Berkeley back in 1966, 67, something like that, 68. Uh, and, you know, but what, do I, what am I supposed to think about all these things? And then Vietnam, of course, really kicked into gear in 65, 66. What am I supposed to think about that? And the Black Panthers movement in Oakland and racism on our police department and stuff, what am I supposed to think about that? What am I supposed to think about people driving around town with guns hanging out their cars? This was not the NRA at that time. Now it's the NRA who does that. Uh, but at that time, it was the Black Panthers who had their guns hanging out the car. But what am I supposed to think about that as a Christian? I can't be in favor of racism, but I'm not in favor of violence either. So what do I think? Anyway, so here all these thoughts are in my head. What am I supposed to think as a Christian? How, how do I think about these things? I knew what I thought about salvation and how to get to heaven and how to get my sins forgiven. I knew that, but I didn't know. I didn't get a lot of help on those things. And then, and then here's a critical piece is here I'm going to Berkeley studying with, uh, you know, really one of the great history departments in the world. But, you know, usually people would say Chicago, Columbia, Berkeley, you know, those are really kind of like the great history faculties, at least in the 60s we used to think that, based on publications and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so these are great world experts, and yet they never mention God. They never, they don't even like to talk about religion. So they're brilliant but they're talking about economic forces and political forces and charismatic individuals and things like that, but they never talk about God in history. And yet I'm going to church on Sunday, and we're talking about God and history all the time. Lord, would you please be involved in our history and things like that. We look back and see providence all over the place getting us to where we are. So how do I bring together these two parts of my life? And so that really got me going on a quest to develop a Christian approach to history, a Christian worldview in terms of how I looked at history. And then I became a teacher. Uh, and so now how do, I, how do I understand from the Bible to be a better teacher? Jesus was the greatest teacher. What can I learn from him about my own approach to teaching? Uh, and then the more I thought about this, the more I was around my friends, we would say, you study business at Berkeley, and so you're studying how to manage people. You're studying how to manage money. But what does the Bible have to say about those things? What is the salting difference in the way we would manage money or manage people or manage organizations that comes out of our faith and out of our biblical commitment? What are the insights that we should be bringing into our business about how to manage people and how to manage money and that type of thing? Or consider if you go to Bolt Hall and you're a lawyer, you're going to become a lawyer, how many Christians who go to law school actually have a, any concept, really, of what the Bible has to say about law and justice? And yet, from cover to cover, the Bible is about law and justice and how to interpret it. Jesus Christ is our advocate. Jesus Christ is the reconciler. When you think about conciliation and advocacy and being a judge, and you think about all of these themes through the whole of the Bible. So that's really uh, number four here is... How can we uh, salt our workplaces, not just by praying for them, evangelizing the people, and setting a good example, but how can we actually bring the wisdom and insight of Scripture into our work? Uh, I just recommend that all of us ought to be spending some time reading, because uh, there's a lot of literature developing these days about these things. I have 
100 books on faith at work at this point and in the business world. And all of us, if we're Christians, ought to have a regular reading program of trying to find some of that stuff and let that help shape us into a Christian presence in the way we manage uh, people and money and things like that. And then I think having a study group is, is really important also, so we don't just do it on our own, but we really reflect with others. Especially if you're an attorney, you ought to have some other attorneys to study with together to say, how can we make a difference and show a difference for Jesus Christ? So four ways to salt the uh, workplace. Uh, that's, this is simple. This is uh, lesson 1A. Uh, but I really believe if we would focus on those four things, we begin to see God shaping us into some salt that's really salty, actually, and some light that will shine and make a difference. The world desperately needs Christians to be that way. The, the marketplace desperately needs Christians who will go against the tide and, and yet do it in a kind of winning way, uh, and we need to learn how to do that. So let me pray, and uh, we'll move on. Lord God, would you help each one of us this morning to be thinking about how we can glorify you and honor you in our work, uh, even as we're preparing, maybe preparing for work by going to school, help us in our school time, our university study time, to be making the most of that, or even in high school, to begin thinking these thoughts of what kind of work do you want us to do, and how can we do it in a way that's glorifying to you. We ask you to use us in the marketplace as well as in the church. In Christ's name, amen.